This is Holden Karnofsky. I'm going to do an amateur read-through of two short related blog posts that I put up recently on cold takes. So the first one is called Empowerment and Stakeholder Management. I've been writing recently about sweeping, very long-run trends in whether things are going well or poorly in the world. One candidate trend I haven't talked about yet is what some see as a trend toward vitocracy, kludocracy, bureaucracy, and or red tape things getting harder to build, more costly, etc. I basically buy the idea that we are seeing and should broadly expect to continue seeing trends in this direction. I think some of this is specific to particular parts of the world, such as the USA, but I broadly expect there to be overall trends in this direction over time pretty much across the board. That's because I think there is a deep connection between empowerment, which is increased options and capabilities for people, that includes technology, and I consider empowerment one of the most robust historical trends, and then stakeholder management, which is the challenge of carrying out activities that a lot of people want input into. I think stakeholder management can explain a lot of what we see in terms of rising bureaucracy, red tape, etc. To be clear, I think stakeholder management can be a good thing too, and that empowerment is broadly worth it despite the stakeholder management challenges. Here I'm going to lay out the conceptual basics of what I mean. Future posts will likely refer back to this one when trying to make sense of ways in which the world may be getting better or worse. Next section. What is stakeholder management? The term stakeholder comes up a fair amount in corporate and nonprofit settings. I'd define it as someone who cares about a decision, wants to weigh in on it, and might react badly if they aren't satisfied by it. For example, if a company changes its compensation policy, affected employees are stakeholders for the decision. If it changes its product, both employees and customers are stakeholders. Now, it's common to do stakeholder management in advance of making some change. That means contacting some key stakeholders, hearing from them how they'd feel about the change, and looking for compromises on the aspects they feel strongest about in order to keep as many people as possible happy and avoid blowback. The more stakeholders there are, the more challenging this can be, and the more it can slow projects down and make it hard to make changes. As an aside, I think the best public examples of what stakeholder management looks and feels like tend to come from stories about how legislation gets passed, such as in the movie Lincoln and the book Showdown at Gucci Gulch. I also liked a Vox article that I linked to, and I list a few sections that seem particularly relevant, if you want to check that out to get a sense of stakeholder management in practice. Now, when we make personal decisions like where to work, whom to date, etc., we don't tend to have to satisfy a lot of stakeholders. If anything, modern individualism makes us more on our own here than we used to be. But when it comes to companies setting policies, legislators making laws, diplomats reaching agreements, schools designing syllabi, governments trying to build subway stations, and more, stakeholder management can be a huge part of where the effort goes. The more active, opinionated stakeholders there are, the more conflicting desires there are to satisfy, and the harder it is to move things forward quickly, decisively, or cheaply. Now, this is often a good thing, and in nonprofit circles, it's often assumed to be a good thing. I'd guess most decisions are much better when they have input from interested and affected parties versus when they're just made unilaterally. I think the right amount of stakeholder participation is more than zero, but I think there's also an amount that just makes it very hard to accomplish anything. For a vivid example, see an article that I linked to on two San Francisco residents who have been solely responsible for blocking large numbers of city projects. And here's a bit of a quote from that article. 
Two San Franciscans seem to have made it their pandemic hobby to file appeals for just about every emergency action taken by the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency in the past six months. Each of the five appeals will cost about 100 hours of work by staff. Each hearing at the Board of Supervisors, which serves as the judge and jury, costs a combined $10,000 in city officials and attorneys' time. In fact, each appeal is taking more time and money than it took to create the emergency programs in the first place. End quote. Now, I think the modern world sees a lot of instances of stakeholder strength growing to the point where making any kind of change to the status quo becomes prohibitively difficult. Some central examples in my mind, one example would be nimbyism, which is not in my backyard. So any attempt to build a subway station, power plant, or just more housing is met with complaints and blocking maneuvers by the people directly affected. There's also a dynamic sometimes referred to as why we can't have nice things, where there are increasingly numbers, increasing numbers of people who might get injured or hurt or just upset by some product or service, possibly suing over it. And so providing the product or service requires more and more measures to preempt possible ways in which it could harm someone. Some nice examples are in an old post on Slate Star Codex that I linked to. Now I see this phenomenon, a growing stakeholder management burden, as having a likely deep connection to historical trends toward greater empowerment. As people become wealthier, more educated, and more informed, they become louder and more opinionated, active stakeholders. To reiterate, I think this is a good thing overall, but it means there are increasing numbers of hurdles to building new things and changing the status quo in domains that invite a lot of stakeholder participation. I like the stakeholder lens better than lenses based around overregulation or bureaucracy or red tape because it points at the underlying cause rather than blaming some particular government or institution. It seems to me that across the world's rich countries, we're seeing consistent trends toward more difficult and costly stakeholder management. For example, I believe it's getting harder in just about all rich urban areas to build new subway stations. I think this dynamic affects private companies, governments, and more. While red tape appears in institutions, I think the underlying cause of the red tape often comes from the behavior of private individuals. So I don't think the world becoming more libertarian, at least in the narrow sense of seeking to shrink government, would necessarily solve much. For example, I wouldn't expect that to lead to more subway stations. Next section, legacy systems and kludocracy. Even holding the amount of stakeholders constant, the burden of stakeholder management and the difficulty of changing the status quo could grow over time via a couple of common dynamics. The first is legacy systems, things that aren't how we would do them today, but that lots of people have built their lifestyles, routines, and businesses around such that change is painful. Here are some simple examples. A lot of government and other bureaucratic processes still give prominent roles to written paperwork and fax machines. Switching over to electronic records tends to be a huge project, even though it would have been easy to start out that way if the technology had been available earlier. Another example, when the World Wide Web was new, there was an opportunity to define the basic protocols and languages that power it, such as HTML, with a lot of freedom. But today, if there were some obvious improvement to how HTML should work, implementing the improvement could cause a lot of websites built under the old system to break. And there's a tremendous amount of effort needed, even for relatively modest upgrades. I think most people would agree that the current way that the various web languages, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, work together to power most websites is a mess and not the way we'd set things up if we were starting over. But also, fundamental change is unlikely. The second dynamic is kludocracy. 
That means when any new initiative or change to policies, neighborhoods, etc., has to navigate legacy systems and compromises with opponents, a system can get more and more complex over time. This can make it more and more difficult to understand what's going on, more and more difficult to understand the full effects of a change, and thus even harder to make changes. The term kludocracy comes from an essay by Stephen Tellis that I linked to. Uh, the essay is focused on the U.S., but I'd expect it to be somewhat applicable across the board. The abstract states, The dictionary tells us that a kludge is an ill-assorted collection of parts assembled to fulfill a particular purpose, a clumsy but temporarily effective solution to a particular fault or problem. Clumsy but temporarily effective also describes much of American public policy. For any particular problem, we've arrived at the most jerry-rigged, opaque, and complicated response. Next section, upshot. In modern, politically stable societies with high levels of empowerment, there's reason to expect that lots of things could get gradually harder to do, and in particular, systems could get harder to change over time. I think this explains many observations about kludocracy, bureaucracy, vitocracy, and red tape, etc. I think the degree of these problems does vary from place to place and domain to domain, and depends on a lot of details of how systems are set up and how stakeholder input works. For example, what can people sue for or formally block, as opposed to just complaining? I think there's probably plenty of room to significantly mitigate these challenges via well-designed processes for considering and not being totally beholden to stakeholder input. But overall, we should expect this sort of thing to be a challenge that grows with modernity. I think it's worth it and consider empowerment overall to be a good thing, but I recognize there's room for debate there. It's also possible that these sorts of problems are pretty temporary in the scheme of things. As these problems become more and more noticeable, there may be increasing pressure to change governance practices and norms to make changes to the status quo easier, or perhaps some other change will come along that makes it all look like small potatoes. And now here's the next related piece. So uh, these are two separate blog posts published on different dates, but I'm just doing them as one recording because they're pretty short and I figured it would be more convenient that way. So this one is called Cost Disease and Civilizational Decline. Cost disease is a term sometimes used to refer to the rising costs over the past several decades of particular goods and services, particularly education, both K-12 and higher education, healthcare, real estate, and infrastructure, for example, subway stations, without commensurately rising benefits. So that's rising costs without commensurately rising benefits. Cost disease has been discussed at length on Slate Star Codex, and I linked to two links on that that I think are helpful for getting a grip on this. Now, I've often heard people citing cost disease as an indicator of general civilizational decline. I've even seen it lumped in with the question of where's today's Beethoven, uh, which is a, a question I covered recently, and so the overall complaint would go along these rough lines. Uh, this is the collapsing civilizational competence hypothesis. That's what I'm calling it. It's CCCH. And it goes like this. We have so much wealth and technology. We have such a huge population. And yet we collectively can't match the music or literature of the past or the scientific innovation of the past or the past's ability to provide an affordable education and healthcare, or even the past subway station construction. Something must be badly broken in our culture. Now, the CCCH, uh, which is the hypothesis I just said, is an intriguing claim, especially so, I think, because we are naturally biased toward imagining the past as a golden age. I haven't seen a major formal defense of CCCH, 
And I previously commented on how people discuss these topics often just very informally, um, but I've heard it come up in many casual conversations. Now, over the last several weeks, I've been examining different topics relevant to the CCCH. Here, I'm going to summarize my take on the CCCH as a whole. At a high level, I basically see it as cherry picking. Now, it'd be one thing if we saw things getting worse everywhere we looked. Declining quality of life, declining wealth, declining technological capabilities, declining athletic abilities. But in fact, the world has been getting better in a large number of ways, and I link to peace on that. So with this in mind, I think it's worth looking at the specific claims made in the CCCH one by one, the different things that seem to be getting worse, and remaining open to the idea that there are lots of different things going on here. We won't see the same theory explaining everything. Once we take that attitude, what I think we see is as follows. First, innovation stagnation and cost disease really seem like different phenomena. Innovation stagnation, which I've written about before in the Where's Today's Beethoven series, this is the, the bit about how today's art doesn't, you know, doesn't seem to be as good as the art of the past, especially given that we have a larger population, so we should have more of it. Um, so, and, and also science. So innovation stagnation is about the output of the tiny upper tail of innovators in society. Uh, by contrast, cost disease is about trends in the average cost to provide goods and services across the board. Now, these two things could be explained by the same underlying story. For example, perhaps everyone is just getting worse at everything. But I don't find that sort of story very likely, especially when I think we have good reason to think that innovation stagnation is about ideas getting harder to find rather than about worsening culture or intelligence. Now, the next point is that cost disease is itself multiple, arguably somewhat cherry-picked phenomena. It's not the case that everything is getting more expensive. In fact, in some sense, the average thing is getting more affordable. I link to a chart of real median household income in the U.S. It's rising or worse flat, and that means that median income is rising faster than average prices. A similar chart for mean income or a global version would be more encouraging still. Now, if food and energy were getting more expensive while education and healthcare were getting cheaper, I imagine the complaints about cost disease would be roughly the same. So we should think of cost disease as a list of several things that are getting more expensive rather than as a phenomenon in which everything gets more expensive. And we should look at each of these several things that are getting more expensive individually. Once we do that, I'd guess that a decent amount of cost disease is explained by the stakeholder management related challenges I laid out in the previous post that I just read through. Slate Star Codex' excellent compilation of comments on cost disease includes several pretty compelling, to me, anecdotes about some of the possible causes that seem to largely reflect stakeholder management challenges, and I link to those. Detailed examinations of what's going on with construction costs, like for subway stations and other infrastructure, seem to imply a major role for stakeholder management, and I footnote some support of that, and I'd guess that similar dynamics affect education and healthcare. As for rising real estate costs, the most facially obvious explanation would seem to be nimbyism, uh, or not in my backyard. I previously discussed this as an instance of stakeholder management challenges. Another salient explanation would be along the lines of, as wealth rises and land doesn't get more plentiful, land should get more expensive. And then I'd guess another significant fraction is explained by things I don't consider to be civilizational decline at all. One of those things is called Baumel's cost disease, and I'm not going to explain accurately what that is because it would just be complex and I didn't write the explanation. I just linked. But it's basically something that is driven by people getting more productive 
And so basically labor becomes more expensive. And so things that are very reliant on labor become more expensive, like education and healthcare. So this would not, this would cause uh, education, healthcare, things like that to go up in price. It would not indicate civilizational decline. And I've also wondered whether there could be similar basic dynamics for things other than labor. So for example, real estate is a key input into many things. Real estate has not been getting cheaper at the same rate as some other things have been getting cheaper. So um, that general idea could be driving some of cost disease. And then I'm pretty compelled by another family of explanations for cost disease that emphasize the combination of a few things. So one of them is rising demand and willingness to pay for good education and healthcare, and then difficulty assessing the quality of education and healthcare. So you can't really tell what you're getting for your money in education, in healthcare. You're willing to spend a lot for the best. So the combination of those two things could be a formula for costs spiraling upwards and paying for a lot of illusory indicators of value. And then you combine that with uh, disintermediation, which means people are not entirely making their own purchasing decisions. So you have healthcare paid for by insurance, public education by government, higher education by scholarships and donations. And then that makes it harder for there to be a subset of the market that is just not willing to spend as much and therefore providing demand for cheaper services. So you put those three things together, rising willingness to pay, difficulty assessing quality and disintermediation, and then you get something where the costs are going to rise for everyone because everyone's kind of stuck in this same boat where there's more demand for things that are, are hard to measure. And so you could certainly call that dynamic and that combination, you could certainly call it dysfunctional, but it's not clear that there's anything here that is unique to today's world or getting worse as time goes on. There's, there's nothing particularly civilizationally declining about this. And so the bottom line is that when I look separately at the various pieces of the CCCH, I ultimately don't see a good case that our society is getting less competent across the board or forgetting how to do basic things or anything like that. I think our society is getting bigger, wealthier, and more capable. And it's sometimes, therefore, getting in its own way in ways that we might naturally expect.